This is a CBC podcast. Danielle Smith has now moved forward with the most anti-LGBT policies of anywhere in the country. I would say that we're supporting kids in, in their right to make decisions about their own journey at a time when they're mature enough to make those decisions. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith says her proposed gender policies are about protecting kids. Critics say her plans are dangerous. I'm Catherine Cullen. This week on The House, we'll look at why Smith is making this controversial move now. Plus, the federal government pushes back a big deadline by three years. Why the pause in offering medical aid in dying to people suffering solely from mental illness? The Conservatives, the Justice Minister, and one woman who feels punished by the politics. Then, a very different kind of political problem. Imagine the White House, or 10 Downing Street, sitting empty, rotting away like that for years. Like, it's just, it's just a black mark on a G7 country. The fight over the fate of 24 Sussex. Lately, it's had more rodents than residents. The inside scoop on how the Prime Minister's house was almost saved just a few years ago, and whether it's now doomed to deteriorate. But first, the politics of Smith's gender policies. The House is now in session. We want to make sure that in every step of that journey that the the kids feel supported by their families and supported by uh, mental health support if that's what they need. Uh, But that is, um, I think that when you're talking about irreversible decisions, that falls into the category of adult choices. And so we want to make sure that they're making those choices as adults. Premier Daniel Smith is moving forward with big changes to gender policies in Alberta. Just a sample, banning surgeries for transgender youth, restricting the use of puberty blockers and hormone therapy, having parents opt in every time their child has a sex ed class, and banning transgender women from competing in women's sports leagues. The Alberta Premier's move has set off alarm bells for many in the LGBTQ community and federal politicians. Randy Boissonneau is the only federal cabinet minister representing Alberta. This is a unilateral ideological move by Danielle Smith and the UCP government to marginalize kids, to other them, and to out not just trans and gender but non-binary kids, but all queer kids. Two keen political watchers are here with me to discuss. Donna McCharles is the Parliamentary Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star. She's with me in Ottawa. And Graham Thompson is a freelance columnist. He joins me from our Edmonton studio. Welcome to the house, t Hi, Catherine. Hi, Graham. Thanks for having me. Hi. Happy to have both of you. Tonda, there's been big reaction to this. How much of a departure is this from what we've seen in other provinces in Canada? Well, we've seen two other provinces take a crack at this, but really they have been trying to, I suppose, uh, contain sort of the social context in, in classrooms by which trans or non-binary kids choose pronouns and, and wanting to bring parental consent into those decisions. But this goes much further. This delves into medical decisions by children and their families. It delves into the whole classroom context of sex education. And in a way, you know, it's interesting, while it purports to um, want to respect the decisions of a child once they were an adult, I mean, it also doesn't respect, though, a child working within the framework of a family who might actually affirm the child's gender choice. So there's a whole ball of wax in here. It's, it's, It's something that crosses educational and health policy guidelines and is is very much, you know, a big red flag to a lot of progressives in this country who see it as uh, inappropriate. 
So, Graham, why go so broad here, so much bigger than we've seen from any other province? It's politics, uh, believe it or not. This is driving <laughs> this. Politicians playing politics. Yeah, this is the thing about Smith. First of all, she's not a social conservative. Even though this is being driven by social conservatives in Alberta, she's not a social conservative. Never has been, really. But it really goes back, in a sense, to the downfall of Jason Kenney. He was brought down in large part by a group called Take Back Alberta. People like them because they saw him as being too moderate, basically. They brought in restrictions during the pandemic. They helped uh, make uh, Daniel Smith the leader of the UCP and become premier. So they're really powerful group. And they've been pushing her hard to take a stand in parental rights. They basically took over the UCP convention last November to promote um, past resolutions, socially conservative resolutions, warning Smith, basically, you got to listen to us or we will remove you from power. So she is playing to this base. She's playing to them to, to make sure that they don't uh, move against her as they did against Kenny. And the fact that uh, the NDP and liberals are, in their eyes, setting their hair on fire, that's, that's just a bonus for Smith to show to the right wing that she's doing something that irritates the liberals and the NDP, own the libs, basically. That's the politics behind this. Now, Tonda, uh, Graham referenced the federal reaction there. From the federal liberal perspective, is this a fight that they want to have? From the federal liberal perspective, yes, because at this point it's a rhetorical fight. Nobody knows yet if Ms. Smith is going to bring this in via regulation or legislation and if it will be challenged by affected families in Alberta, in which case then there's something to actually act upon, a court case, maybe intervene on. You know, we also don't know to what extent it would um, infringe principles that the Liberal government deems important under the Canada Health Act. Would these be considered medically necessary services that are, would no longer be funded by Alberta and then there's something they could chew on too. It's at this point, I think, a way for the Liberal government to continue to signal its support for the LGBTQ community and rhetorical attacks on what it deems to be a, a very, you know, right-wing government in the province of Alberta. But it's not a fight that I think that they have a, a way into being a player. But don't <laughs> Don't mistake, you know, they're, they're going to use it at every turn to speak about those values. Interesting, I found, though, the Prime Minister today talked about this saying, we'll always stand up for LGBT youth uh, who are very vulnerable. And that's true. The stats do show that, you know, LGBT youth and people, trans people in particular, and non-binary kids suffer from greater mental health issues, uh, suicidality, a whole bunch of bad outcomes. We saw this playbook a bit in Quebec, didn't we? They defended the rights of people to wear hijabs and whatnot, but they didn't get involved until there were court cases and by people in that province, and then they could take up, and we haven't actually seen them take that up mm -hmm. strongly, a, a role to intervene. Graham, another interesting thing that the Prime Minister said is, you know, don't fight LGBTQ kids. Uh, Premier Smith, if you want to fight, fight with, uh, with us on affordability and sort of brought it to all of these other issues. Because, of course, I think one of the tensions around these social issues is that while they provoke a lot of strong feelings. They aren't a day-to-day -day issue for the majority of Canadians. What do you think the political calculation is for Danielle Smith in terms of where most most people are at on some of these social issues? 
apparently there's been they've been doing polling showing that Albertans will support this kind of thing as long as it's framed as she is doing her best to frame it we're just protecting the kids there's that narrative out there from the right wing though um, you saw I guess uh, Governor DeSantis has, has said things like you know they're chopping off parts of kids bodies um, young kids bodies of course that's not the case but there's a narrative out there that in fact children are being harmed by you know woke uh, teachers and left, extreme leftists as uh, Smith called them that they're doing harm to these kids so She's framing it, trying to frame it as all I am trying to do is protect children. And who is against protecting children, right? Now, experts on the other side are saying, no, this is going to do a lot of harm to trans kids and, um, you know, force them out um, either out of the closet, uh, so to speak, or make them um, stay in the closet or out them to their parents. And they don't want that to happen. But as long as Smith can keep the framing that she's just doing the best for uh, the kids in the schools, that's going to help her. And so far, apparently, they've done polling on that, and that's the reaction they're getting from people. Now, if, if they can maintain that, and you're right, these issues don't tend to drive elections, but I think if they do tend to drive, though, for her, uh, the reaction from her right-wing base, and she really wants a positive reaction from them, the problem is this could still blow up. It's a big issue in Alberta a number of years ago on gay-straight alliances. You know, they wanted to um, you know force the kids out, basically, to their parents, and that did not go well for the Conservatives. So these things can blow back if it's showing what the government is doing is actually going to harm kids. Tonda? I just was going to say here that, look, the federal Conservatives, we saw the Global Mail reported an internal memo that uh, Conservative leader Pierre Poilievre sent to his caucus mates about not commenting on this. And if you're asked and you're forced to comment, talk about it in context of either parental rights or its provincial jurisdiction, its health, its education, but don't engage on this because it's not a, a vote getter, vote winner in their eyes. But I will say this, on privately, when I've spoken to some conservative strategists around what's going on in the country on this debate, they say, look, bring it on, because that's actually a debate they think that they could win in parental opinion and voter opinion. It's not that they're going to campaign on it, but they don't think that most Canadians are on the side of, you know, a free-for-all discussion around this. So it's going to get, I think, pretty hot and heated. Graham, just quickly in closing, uh, Premier Smith has said that this probably won't move forward until the fall. Mm -hmm. Do you think that she is likely to go ahead with everything she spelled out here? Look, you know, she in the past has, uh, you know, backed down from things when she made mistakes. She brought in the Sovereignty Act. Remember that? And the first day, there's actually a way for her to bypass the legislature. Then she had to back down on that a week later. So I think... Right now, it could be, in a sense, a very public trial balloon that she's raising to see the kind of reaction she gets. She's hoping that public will support it. If it doesn't, if it blows up, then, then she can, of course, modify it. And this is not a law yet. We haven't seen it. She is saying what she is saying right now. But that could very well be modified because the NDP in Alberta is going to be pushing back against this tooth and nail. Okay, we're going to leave it there. Thank you both so much for this conversation. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Graham Thompson and Tonda McCharles. This week, the federal government said the country is not yet ready for a change to who can get a medically assisted death. So the government is pausing the plan to let people with mental illness only get a doctor or nurse practitioner's help to die. Instead of coming into force next month, the government is planning to postpone until 2027. This is actually the second time the government has paused the plan. We'll hear from both the justice minister and a conservative MP in a moment. But first someone who was waiting for this change. 
Agata Gavron is in her 40s and lives in Regina. And a warning, this conversation alludes to suicide. I was diagnosed with depression at the age of 13, and it progressively got worse. At the same time, I was suffering from anorexia and bulimia. I hid it very well. I just say I isolated myself, which is one of the symptoms of this disease. I've started noticing um, kind of physiological, physical changes in my body that are progressively getting worse. And it's now to the point where I don't know what's going to come first, whether or not I won't be able to handle the pain of my mental illness anymore, or whether or not my physical condition will deteriorate to a point where I'm unable to to live uh, independently and have to rely on services or support services. I don't want that. I, I wanted to pursue MAID not with, a, with an end date in mind, meaning that I'm going to have an actual date of passing. I wanted to have that as a means of being prepared for when I'm no longer able to bear the pain that I live with on a daily basis. I know that my condition can't be cured and I've come to terms with that. I don't want to be helped anymore. I don't want to become somebody's pet project or somebody's experiment trying to fix me. All I want is compassion and acceptance for my choice and my way of dealing with an issue that I know is, is uncurable. Again, it's, doors are being shut right in front of my face. And it's unfortunate, it, it really is, that somebody is, is making a choice with my life, whether, whether or not they know it. I just want people in power to know that I'm still going to go on my own terms, um, whether it will be in a peaceful manner, that's, that's really up to them. I really wish that people would understand that some individuals are okay with not wanting to be helped and don't expect it, but would like to have control over their life and how, to, how they leave or what they leave behind. Agatha Gavron was sharing her perspective with the CBC's Christine Bierak. If you need to talk, the National Suicide Crisis Helpline is 988. You can call or text. To get the federal government's perspective on the pause on this expansion of medically assisted dying, Arif Farhani is the federal justice minister. Welcome to the House. Thank you. When you hear people like Agatha Gavron, who says she is suffering and that somebody is making a choice with my life, one of those somebodies is you, Minister. What would you say to her? Well, I just listened to Agatha, and I would say to her that I hear her and I understand uh, her view and her perspective. And uh, my heart breaks when I hear a story like that. What I'm trying to do as a minister and as a parliamentarian is what our government is trying to do, which is just trying to find the right balance in what is a very sensitive and intensely personal decision for Canadians. 
And we've been trying to carve that balance and find that balance for about eight years now since we first responded to the court decision in Carter. And it's difficult. It's hard hearing from her. It's hard hearing from Canadians right around the country. But what we've always tried to do is give power and autonomy to people like Agata, but also ensuring at the same time that we are always providing safeguards and protections for people that are vulnerable. And in finding that balance, it's not a perfect art, uh, but we need to be sensitive to what we're hearing from the very healthcare professionals that would be delivering the type of assistance that Agatha is asking for. And the psychiatrists, the nurses, the doctors, they have spoken to myself and to me and to Minister Holland with uniformity. And they have said, along with their provincial and territorial counterparts who are leading those healthcare services, that they are not ready to take this step. But but several MAID providers did tell parliamentarians that they are ready. So why do you need three whole years? I mean, this was something that was supposed to come into place in, in, in just over a month, and now you're asking for three more years. What we've heard, we've heard from unanimously, Catherine, at the federal provincial tables that we host, that to a person, all of the provincial health ministers and territorial health ministers feel that they are not ready. And we've heard from the the vast majority of healthcare providers that they feel they are not ready. Has Have steps been taken to improve the readiness of the system? Yes. There have been some curriculum that's been developed, for example, but there's not been a wide take-up of that curriculum. And when we're dealing with a situation where the consequences are extremely significant and, and by definition permanent, we owe it to Canadians that we make sure that we get the balance right. In a system where we don't deliver the healthcare to proceed against the wishes of those who are actually administering the healthcare would, from my perspective, be an not prudent and an irresponsible step to take at this point. Some of the senators who were part of the committee studying this issue believe that you should be going ahead with this expansion now, and they have said that that three years is a political choice. Here is some of what Senator Pamela Wallen had to say. Well, I think it, in a sense, speaks for itself that this has become a political decision. Honestly, I think it's cruel and unusual punishment um, for Canadians who have a constitutional right. How do you respond to her, Minister? Well, I'd first say to her, thank, I'd thank her for her contributions to that committee that just sat for the second time looking at this exact issue. And we've heard not once but twice from that committee, from the majority of the members of that committee, that the system is not ready. And what I would say to her is that this is the furthest thing from a political decision. Since the get-go, I've been on CBC programs talking about medical assistance and dying when I was a rookie parliamentarian, and this has never been treated as a political decision. This has been treated as a matter of conscience. People have been voting their conscience in the House of Commons, as they should, because it is such a deeply personal uh, and significant issue for so many of us. Minister, we just have a moment left, and I do have to ask you, by putting the date after the next election, do you risk losing power and not being able to make the change that you committed to? The I can't predict for people uh, around the country what's going to transpire in the, in the next election whenever it comes. What I can say is that our determination as a government has always been to ensure that we respond to the court decision in Carter and respond to the courts thereafter that have called for modifications in the approach to medical assistance in dying. We will continue to endeavour to do that. And what we're putting in place 
is a temporary pause for a period of time that allows the system to be ready to respond to people like Agatha. She deserves a response. She deserves a compassionate response. That is always what we are trying to do in respect of medical assistance in dying. We will continue with that as our objective. Are other expansions like advanced directives still on the table before 2027? Advanced directives and other issues that might relate to mature minors are not something that is currently being contemplated by our government. Right now we are dealing with what is at hand, which is this issue about mental illness as the sole underlying condition, and that is what we're addressing with the legislation that we've uh, tabled in the House. Thank you for this conversation today, Minister. Thank you, Catherine. There's a wide range of public opinion on this issue, and there's a wide range of political opinion, too. Conservative MP Ed Fast is on the Special Joint Parliamentary Committee on Medical Assistance in Dying. He introduced a private member's bill to ban medical aid in dying solely for mental illness, but it failed a second reading vote in the House last fall. I went up to meet him on Parliament Hill. Ed Fast, welcome to the House. Glad to be with you. So why do you think this should never become a reality in Canada? There are a number of outstanding issues that the mental health profession has never been able to resolve. Uh, the issues of irremediability or incurability, uh, the issue of the distinction between suicidal thoughts and a rational decision to ask for MAID. The mental health profession itself has admitted that they have been unable to resolve those issues satisfactorily. Well, it's my understanding that the committee heard that there's a difference of opinion about that. Some doctors feel that, in fact, it's already dealt with in the MAID process, and others have said it's a struggle. What's the majority, I believe, across Canada of mental health professionals who oppose the expansion of MAID, certainly at this time, simply because those issues have not been resolved. And remember, we're dealing with a life and death issue. This is not fiscal policy. It's not monetary policy. This is about the life and death of the most vulnerable in our society. And I believe, given what's at stake, we have to be extremely cautious about moving forward. You are, I'm sure, well aware that some of the senators on the committee said that it amounts to discrimination to say that people can have access to a doctor or nurse practitioner's help to die when they have a physical ailment, but to not give mental illness the same treatment. What do you make of that argument? I disagree with them profoundly on that. Uh, The suggestion has been that the courts would uh, require Parliament to expand made to include the mentally ill. I believe they are wrong on the law. And there are dozens of professors of law across Canada that have signed a letter saying that uh, the Carter decision... Which is the decision that started this whole thing in 2015. That's correct. That was the decision that started this whole process of introducing MAID to Canada. Uh, The Carter decision did not actually compel government to move beyond uh, the original uh, MAID regime that was introduced in Canada. Going beyond the legal argument for a minute to the sort of um, more fundamental, I don't know if we want to call it human or philosophical argument, you are a conservative. Is it not a conservative principle that the individual is the one best positioned to decide what's best in their own life? I believe what uh, individuals really deserve is the right to live lives that are meaningful, that are productive, that are free of pain as much as possible. And sadly, in Canada right now, we are not providing the mental health supports, the social supports that the most vulnerable populations in our country really deserve. And until we've actually wrestled with that issue 
and done everything we can to deliver the mental health supports, the palliative care supports, the social supports, housing, etc., uh, that these vulnerable populations need. I believe it's a mistake to now cross Rubicon and permanently implement MAID for the mentally ill and other vulnerable groups. I'm not in favor of an expansion of MAID beyond where it is right now. Do you accept that there are some cases where people have gotten the supports and then ought to, at that point, have medical help to end their life? I accept that some people feel they're entitled to MAID. That doesn't mean that should be the social policy for Canada. We as parliamentarians have to make very, very difficult decisions. We have to weigh the consequences of our policy decisions as well as uh, the rights of individuals to have their cases considered on their merits. In closing, to be clear, you're prepared to support the government's three-year delay? Yes, very much so. We support the delay, but we, uh, in our uh, dissenting supplementary opinion uh, in the MAID committee, ask that MAID for mentally ill be completely rescinded. Well, and so this leads me to my next question. Given that it is a three-year delay, there is going to be an election in that time, and the polls suggest the Conservative Party could come to power. Is it the Conservative Party's position that if you are in power, this will not see the light of day, this will not be a reality? Pierre Polyev has made it very clear that if we form government after the next election, that we will be rescinding the expansion of MAID to the mentally ill. Thank you for your time today, Mr. Fast. You're very welcome. Lots more coming up on the House podcast. I'm Catherine Cullen. You're listening to Canada's most popular political affairs program. A new episode of The House drops every Saturday. Remember, you can find news and interviews on our website, cbc.ca slash the house. There's been a flurry of activity at 24 Sussex Drive for months. Workers removing asbestos and dead rodents from the wall. But it's a Band-Aid solution to prevent the place from crumbling further. No prime minister seems to want to spend the millions needed to make the official residence safe to live in again. So what should be done about Canada's most famous heritage home? When will a decision be made? Turns out the House's senior producer, Jennifer Chevalier, has a surprising connection to 24 Sussex. Here's her report. It's an embarrassment that we can't find a solution to a safe uh, residence for our head of government. It's a country of 40 million people, $2 trillion economy. The government of Canada spends about $420 billion a year. You would think we could manage to build a house for a family. The Prime Minister's residence is a place worth saving. And the fact that the regular due diligence has not been done for 15 years, there's a reason that there are rats running through the place. If you left your place vacant for 15 years, you'd have rats running through it too. 24 Sussex hasn't been vacant for quite that long, but no one's lived there since Stephen Harper left office. When Justin Trudeau was elected in 2015, he and his family moved into nearby Rideau Cottage. Here's the Trudeau's new home, a Victorian house in a private area on the grounds of Rideau Hall, home of the Governor-General. The National Capital Commission has now finished removing all the asbestos, lead and mold from the property and has stripped out the old electrical wiring and plumbing too. Heat pumps are being installed in the empty property to keep it from freezing while a decision is made on its future. 
As for the rodents, well, they were mostly mice, and they're mostly gone. All this in a home that was described in 1867 in the Ottawa Citizen like this. The style of the building is gothic, and the design chaste and elegant. The mantelpieces are marble. The woodwork is of the best possible material and quality. The building is... Before it was the Prime Minister's residence, it was a family home, built by the lumber baron Joseph Currier for his wife, but it was sold in 1902 to the Edwards family. So this is me. Put your coat here or there. Thank you. The Edwards family, well, that's actually my mother's family. Turns out, a long time ago, my great-great-uncle used to own 24 Sussex Drive. So to better understand the history of this famous home, I went to visit my third cousin once removed, John Bogue. He still remembers the last time he visited his grandfather, Gordon Edwards, at 24 Sussex. I was six, and for some reason I, I was visiting my grandfather. I was staying there. I have a very distinct memory of what the house was like. When you walked into the foyer, you were facing a fireplace that at six years old I could walk into and not hit my head on the mantle. Right into the fireplace. But in the 1940s, the Government of Canada expropriated 24 Sussex Drive from Gordon Edwards. He fought it until the very end. They expropriated it when my grandfather was living there. They didn't settle with him. In fact, they didn't settle with him at all. They settled with his executors after he died. My uncle wasn't satisfied with the, what they'd offered. And, you know, it, it makes you wonder why the government spent whatever they did only to leave it basically vacant. I'm Michael Wernick. I was Clerk of the Privy Council and Secretary of Cabinet from 2016 to 2019. And indeed, in 2016, we came very close (laughs) to a Cabinet decision on renovation of uh, 24 Sussex. Uh, The matter was put to Cabinet, and Cabinet decided not to proceed. The Trudeau government came close to fixing it up. But according to Michael Warnick, the problem for any Prime Minister is politics. The Prime Minister who approves money on the building... Uh, is accused of uh, pampering himself and and, uh, living off taxpayers' funds. This goes back to Pierre Trudeau in the swimming pool of 40 or 50 years ago. Anytime there's been any money spent on any of the official residences, uh, you get the sort of performance theatre from whoever's in opposition of the day, from media, from some of the the lobby groups. There's no political upside for going ahead with either a renovation or, or a new building. There's only pain to be had. If Mr. Trudeau came and said, yes, I'm going to be, you know, rebuilding 24 Sussex at $37 million, well, you know darn well the next headline's going to be, oh, Mr. Trudeau is just building himself a, a kingdom, you know? But former Heritage Minister Sheila Copps admits that she herself was guilty of piling on the pressure in her day. I said to Mr. Mulroney when I was talking about 24 Sussex, I mean, I was in the opposition when his poor kids just wanted to have toilets that fixed because, you know, they, they had little children and what they did was they changed the sinks. And anyway, we made a lot of hay out of that in the opposition. So I'm as guilty as anybody about attacking governments for spending. There's only a short window when a prime minister can spend the money, according to Andrew McDougall. He was communications director for Stephen Harper and says his former boss never got a window. There are optimum times to do things. There are bad times to do things. Obviously, early in a mandate, 
when you're fresh off a win and people are feeling good is the best time to do it. So if you wind that back and look at when Stephen Harper was first elected in 2006, it was with the tiniest. I mean, it was a minority government. There was 125 MPs out of 308. So that's not the kind of time you want to go uh, and spend money on things like renovating the house. You know, was there a moment in 2011? Perhaps, but then that was on the tail end of the, the global economic recession. And it, the mood at that time was to get, you know, the belt tightened again. And McDougal can't see Justin Trudeau making the decision to renovate anytime soon. You know, he's taking heat for going on private vacations to kind of wealthy beach resorts. That's two or three times that's happened now. The last thing he's going to want to do is to renovate the residents. It also, you know, sadly would give the media another or, or commentary out there a chance to rehash his divorce and that personal situation. Of my list of priorities, this will probably be the last. So what about Pierre Polyev riding high in the polls? If he wins a majority government, what might he do? If he comes and smashes it in the current polling holds and he's got a huge majority, then I think the chances go up. If it, if it shrinks, you know, it doesn't take a genius to see that the chances go down. So we'll see. But having gone so hot on Man of the People, uh, housing pain, he's certainly not going to put anything up in bright lights about it. It will be, I was forced to, or look, this is a decision we had to take in the national interest, because if we delay it like Trudeau delayed it for eight years, we won't have a decision to make and we'll be out of a residence. And, and that does nobody any good. The big problem is the big price tag. The National Capital Commission says the government needs to spend nearly $37 million to fix it up. Plus, there's the issue of how to keep the PM and their families safe. Former clerk of the Privy Council, Michael Wernick, again. I'm of the view that that site cannot be made safe, based on my, my briefings and my knowledge of it. There are people more expert on this. But in an age of drones, rocket propelled grenades and truck bombs and so on, the, the house is too close to the road and too close to the river. And you need things like steel plates in the roof. You need things like blast-proof framing in the building. You can do all of that and have any architectural look you want. It's very, very expensive to do it to an old building like 24 Sussex. The security number has been absolutely overblown. I remember discussing this with my former boss, Mr. Kretsch, and he said, well, of course, if you give it to the RCMP, they want state-of-the-art everything. They're going to want to take you to the moon. The reality is that the security numbers haven't actually been rolled out and nor has there been a proper uh, analysis. Sheila Copps has been lobbying for the preservation of 24 Sussex on behalf of Heritage Ottawa Development Inc. The group disputes the estimated cost of the renos. So I've come to meet their past president, Mark Brandt, a conservation architect. You can see the front hall stairs, which is this beautiful, flowing, gorgeously curved stair that goes up and it's open on the second floor. It'd be just literally a crime to knock the thing down and lose those. So we wanted to maintain... All He's showing me his drawings for a reimagined 24 Sussex. He came up with the designs after the idea of ditching the house and building a whole new residence was first floated a few years ago. But I asked him why Canada should bother with the crumbling family home. First of all, the site is singular within the National Capital Region. It's basically at the confluence of the three rivers, the very raison d'etre for the capital at, at this place. That's a pretty good reason right there. But you're talking about the location. If this place is uninhabitable, why not tear it down and build a new one? So when you build a stone structure, you're building for millennia. It's not the throwaway society. Yeah, there's some repairs needed, but our entire mindset about buildings has to change. 
climate change is the reason. We cannot afford to build and then demolish and build new again. And we think that 24 Sussex is the place to demonstrate to all Canadians, both within the building sector and those who simply have an old house that needs to be upgraded, that, hey, if we can do it for 24 Sussex, you can do it too. So how does Canada get out of the political stalemate and move forward with a decision, any decision? Sheila Copps has been working on a cross-partisan push. I had reached out to Ed Broadbent, and he was actually willing to write a letter, but he wanted comfort with other leaders, so I had reached out to Mr. Kretchan. I'd actually reached out through a Conservative to a couple of the Conservative Prime Ministers. I was in touch with Mr. Mulroney, actually. And so we were looking at trying to do something collectively to sort of take the political sting out of it, so it's not just one party. Sadly, Mr. Broadbent is not going to be able to participate, um, but we're still working on that possibility for sure. So there's two reasons why it can't go on. One is it's, it's just a black mark on a G7 country. The other reason is over time there's physical degradation. And the longer you leave something and let it deteriorate, the higher the cost will be to fix it up. So the cheapest maintenance is annual maintenance. Andrew McDougall says it's time to do the maintenance. I would say to spend the money. You know, this is the thing is that you don't get credit for not spending the money, but you do get blame if the residence falls apart under your watch. And I think at some point it just becomes embarrassing. And it just takes a leader with a bit of confidence to go, look, we are a G7 country. We are an important country on the world stage. We don't keep things together with Bondo and hockey tape, right? We should be able to have something that looks good and serves the purpose that we need it to serve. The office of the minister responsible for the file says any decision on the future of 24 Sussex won't be taken lightly and will balance security, historic preservation and sustainability. But they didn't say when it will happen. And given the politics of it all, if no decision is made, I mean, does that open up room for the previous owners to get it back? I asked my cousin John Bogue. Do you think the Edwards should move back in? (laughs) I don't think we can afford it now. (laughs) For The House, I'm Jennifer Chevalier. It's proving to be one of the most politically charged issues in the toxic drug crisis. And now British Columbia's Dr. Bonnie Henry has weighed in on how prescribed safer supply is going in that province. Safe or safer supply is when people struggling with addiction are given prescribed drugs so they don't overdose on toxic street drugs. Dr. Henry acknowledged there are real concerns about how it's going, but she also called for expanding the program. Jennifer Whiteside is the BC Minister for Mental Health and Addictions. Thank you for your time. Good morning. In her review, Dr. Henry notes that some of these drugs are ending up in the hands of someone other than the patients, what's known as diversion. She says the province doesn't know how big that problem is. How concerned are you? Well, you know, I think, uh, Catherine, that any time we are aware of people misusing their prescriptions, whether it's under this particular program or in general, clinicians have tools to apply to those situations to manage the treatment of, of their patients. And that's in large part what we rely on in this circumstance. But absolutely, we have uh, worked with our health authorities, with regulatory bodies. You know, we need to pull everybody into this conversation to ensure that clinicians have sufficient tools to be able to manage any potentially unintended consequences of the prescribing that they're doing. 
I've heard that comparison before to, well, people misuse prescription drugs. But isn't it a bit different when this is something that is sanctioned by the government? Isn't there sort of a different moral weight for the government when there's a question of people misusing this program? Uh, absolutely. I mean, we it's really imperative that we ensure that this program is working in the ways that we intend it to work. And that is to separate people from the toxic drug supply, people who have severe opioid use disorder, for whom other treatment pathways haven't been successful. And we know from uh, work, from studies that physicians uh, have done, a recent study that was published in the uh, British Medical Journal, that there is some very promising evidence now starting to come out of this particular approach to, to treating people who, to helping people manage their disease when they have severe addiction issues. And so we, we want to ensure that we have a solid foundation to move forward in an evidence-based way and work with all of the parties who are involved, frontline clinicians, the nurses, the regulatory bodies to ensure that it's working as intended. You talk about evidence, and I do want to say here, because this may surprise some people, uh, in Dr. Henry's report, she says, evidence so far around safer supply is promising, but not at this point strong enough for this intervention to be described as fully evidence-based. So Dr. Henry's saying, right now, where we're at, this is not fully evidence-based. She is, though, suggesting that the discussion about making these alternatives to street drugs available um, You should be talking about that for people without individual prescriptions. She's, in fact, researching alternative models right now. Would you consider that kind of expansion, offering these drugs to people who don't have a prescription? No, uh, we've been very, very clear. We think it's really critical to maintain the connection that individuals have to the health system, to their practitioner, whether that's a nurse practitioner or a, or, or a doctor, that that's sort of the whole point of this program is to provide people with the connection to healthcare. That's the successful part of this is that, you know, not only do we separate people from the illicit supply, which just takes the risk down immeasurably, but also they get connected to primary care supports. So they have wraparound services. They may have, uh, you know, access to, to counseling. They may have access to other kinds of supports that help them stabilize their life. I've spoken to people who have gotten their lives back. And this measure is one measure that, you know, that's played a part. I think in the context for British Columbia, dealing with a health emergency where we lost 2,500 British Columbians to poisoned uh, drugs last year, we have to try everything that we possibly can to try to keep people alive so that we can... So why not try this, ministers? The, the chief coroner has uh, expressed an interest in this. Dr. Bonnie Henry is expressing an interest in it. You're saying we have to try everything we can. Why not try this? Well, I, I mean, again, we have to do that in a way that ensures that we minimize unintended consequences. So okay. we saw through the e- extraordinary work that Dr. Henry did, and I will say I'm very grateful to all of those frontline practitioners who spoke with her. And so we have a very, uh, a much better picture now of what this process is like for, for doctors and nurses and people on, on the ground. We know that there are some some doctors who would like to see more access through a non-prescriber models. There are some doctors who don't think we should go down that route at all. So we have a ways to go to continue to build the evidence. As you said, this is a very innovative approach to treating this uh, condition. It was stood up in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, in large part early on as a measure to ensure that we didn't have unintended consequences of the public health orders associated with COVID-19, which profoundly and fundamentally disrupted people's connection to their communities, to healthcare, to gathering. 
it was meant to try to help keep people alive then. And now in a post-pandemic period, we need to evolve this program so that it's appropriate for the time that we're in now. One thing that has certainly turned up the political temperature around this whole debate is reporting by the National Post that these safer supply drugs are being prescribed to minors without parental consent. Is that the case? No. You surprised me there, Minister. Uh, So how do you explain that it's become part of the public record when this is not, in fact, something that's happening in your province? Because they pointed to um, published guidance. You're saying that regardless of that published guidance, this isn't happening anywhere in B.C.? That is published guidance, clinical guidance, much like any other guidance that's published to guide medical practitioners when they're dealing with different chronic diseases and and, and medical conditions. I can tell you that fentanyl has not been prescribed to anyone under 19. The the guidance that you're referring to refers to uh, medications that are available to a very, very small number of people in a very small number of circumstances under this program. It is not helpful to take information and uh, mislead people into thinking that something's happening, that it's not. So we check on these things. We have, you know, doctors are very careful about particularly how they are treating minors. Uh, We are aware, of course, that when it comes to children and youth, I mean, our number one priority is to is to ensure that children and youth have access to the kind of mental health supports that they need, the kind of care uh, that they need, which is different from adults if they are experiencing challenges with, uh, with with addiction. And so, you know, that's work that we're doing within our healthcare system. But minors are not being prescribed under the Safer Supply Program. And is it your policy that that is not something you believe ought to happen as well? You're saying it isn't happening right now, but I want to be clear the BC government's policy is it it should not be allowed. Well, I would say that, you know, we've had very clear explanations from frontline physicians around how minors are dealt with in the healthcare system. And no, we don't think that that minors should be, they're they're not, minors are not enrolled in this program. The the Safer Supply Program is for adults experiencing severe opioid use disorder. Clinicians, of course, have, you know, if they're dealing with an 18-year-old, they will be applying their clinical judgment to how to manage uh, the treatment for, for that individual. But there's no question that parents are very involved. I talk to parents all the time. Parents who have who have children who are dealing with addictions issues and who are seeking care through our healthcare system, and in my experience, parents are are often very involved in these situations. Um, we check through through our pharmacare you know, records what is happening with the the medications that are being prescribed under this under this program. And the focus of Safer Supply again is on adults who have severe opioid use disorder for whom other kinds of treatment have not been successful. Okay. In closing, I do want to ask you about decriminalization because, of course, we've come up on the one-year anniversary. Dr. Henry said this week, it's been a challenge. How would you describe the first year of decriminalization? Um, Yeah, I mean, I I would disagree with that. I I mean, I think, you know, this, again, was a program that we developed in consultation with law enforcement, with uh, frontline care providers, with public health, with people with lived and living experience, with a wide range of partners who really saw the need, again, in the context of a poison drug crisis that has taken over 1,300 lives in British Columbia since it was declared a health emergency in 2016. So, so how would you sum up the challenge, Minister? How would you describe to people across the country what the challenge has been? Certainly some of it's been public pushback. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, you know, I think that we have, you know, a, a number of intersecting crises right now. We have, you know, we've come out of the global pandemic. We have challenges with, on a housing front, uh, with homelessness, uh, with, you know, increased mental health concerns that, that people are experiencing. So all of that is 
a lot for people to grapple with right now. And in the midst of this, we're also trying to change up the relationship between police and, and people who are carrying small amounts for personal use. And I would say on that front, we're seeing very promising outcomes. We've actually seen a dramatic drop in charges for possession and in seizures in these circumstances. And what that means is that we're, we're winding up with a more equitable approach, a more consistent, I guess I would say, more consistent approach to policing across the province. You know, this is a long-term project. This is not something that is going to solve one part, even one part of our problem in the short term. I appreciate you making the time to talk about this today. Thanks so much. Jennifer Whiteside is the BC Minister for Mental Health and Addictions. As you heard there, we were surprised when the minister said no minors were part of the Safer Supply program. We double-checked with her office. They reiterated that no minors have received fentanyl. However, since December 2022, 53 people under the age of 19 have received at least one dose of an opioid alternative through the Safer Supply program in B.C. That's it for us this week. Our crew on the house is Kristen Everson, Emma Godmere, Christian Poslang, and our senior producer is Jennifer Chevalier. I'm Catherine Cullen. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.